0: Hello and welcome to the National Ninja League Podcast. I'm Alex Cunningham. In a moment I'll be joined by NNL President Chris Wolchowski and we'll be welcoming to the program Ethan Swanson. He is the swan, one of the most recognizable ninjas in our sport. We had a nice chat about his training, his philosophy to ninja, and also a lot about the creative process behind designing a course. He was the designer of the Ultimate Ninjas Chicago course back in September, and that was one of our favorite courses of the season. He had so many cool ideas, and it was really interesting to pick his brain and see how he came up with all these ideas. Quick disclaimer, this was recorded back in October, so a little of the information might be outdated, but I think the overarching lessons uh, stand the test of time, so to speak. And before we hop into that interview, I just want to give you guys a quick reminder We are just two weeks away from the 2019 National Ninja League World Championships. They will be held at the XL Center Exhibition Hall in Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, Of course, Real Life Ninja Academy is going to put on a great event. There are going to be over 1,500 athletes, and you can watch every second of it, every run in every division, live for free on Facebook. More details about that coming soon. Stay tuned to our social media. And we'll talk about that a little bit after we talk to Ethan. But now I'm going to toss the program back over to me and Chris and Ethan from the past. We hope you enjoy. And we are blessed by the presence of one of the five men to get to stage three this past season in the NNO World Championship, and one of the ninjas you certainly know from TV, Ethan Swanson. Thank you for joining us, Ethan.
1: Uh, wow, what an introduction. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, thanks, man. Well, this after is you guys a... were gushing
0: over me in the uh, pre-record that I, of course, didn't record, I, I, I had to return a favor.
1: <laughs> That's every word, man. But, yeah, thank you for having me on. This is such a cool podcast, and I'm just happy to be a part of it. I'm glad
0: somebody likes it. <laughs> yeah.
2: so, so, Ethan, I kind of want to ask you, um, what was it like competing at uh, Worlds this past year?
1: Oh, it was awesome. I, uh, you know... I'd competed the year before and not done very well. I fell in stage one. So I I went in thinking, you know, this is, it's completely different. Doesn't matter what had happened in the regular season. Um, But it's, it's so amazing because they're the only places where you get to compete with that high level of competition are on American Ninja Warrior and in the NNL world finals. And, um, and so you look around, you see all these people that I look up to and think, Oh man, I got to compete against them and with them. But, it's just – it's really special. It's really special that uh, that everyone can come together in one place and compete at the highest level.
2: So I actually want to ask you about um, your Stage 1 fall uh, in Season 2 because uh, I was looking up your uh, results um, before the podcast, uh, trying to do my due diligence. And I, I saw that you fell on Stage 1, which really surprised me. Um, and can, can you tell me a little bit about that, about that? Like what happened?
1: Yeah, I mean, well <laughs> – uh, one of my favorite sayings, and I, I, I don't know who to credit it to, my favorite quote about American Ninja Warrior is, it's always going great until it's not. And I feel like that's exactly how I felt in my stage one run in uh, season two, is is I felt great and I was going to the second to last obstacle, the slip chucks to the impossible. And I just, I had never touched an impossible before. And I completely misjudged how it was going to feel. So I grabbed in the wrong spot and I couldn't recover and, Hit the corner of the landing pad and fell back into the uh, into the no zone, and that was the end of my run. And it really made me realize, like, hey, like if there are elements that I haven't touched before, I really got to think so much more about you know how to attack them because everyone's in the same boat. No one has touched the course, so I, I really have to think about those elements, and I, I I didn't prepare myself enough for it.
2: So
0: this season you finished in fifth place. Um, obviously, an extremely difficult stage two. 61 attempted it and only five cleared. What do you think set yourself above the rest that you were able to be one of the very few to beat that really difficult stage two?
1: Well, First off, stage two was unreal. I, it's just, I'm a big fan of like the recent years of American Ninja Warrior where if you get to stage three, like the people that get to stage three, there are a few of them and they're immediately like, holy cow, they achieved something by getting there. I'm a, I'm a big fan of stuff like that. Like I was a huge fan season nine of like, you know, the, uh, um, certain city qualifiers or city finals had one finisher at the top because when it happens, it's super special. I love NNL qualifiers where there's one finisher, two finishers. Cause when it happens, it feels like that person, like I got chills thinking about it. That person did something amazing, you know? Um, so definitely like I, I had a, a good run in, in stage one. So I was one of the later runners in stage two. And I remember watching these people that I look up to and consider way stronger than myself falling or burning out. And I was like in my head, like this is not going to go great. <laughs> like when you watch some of the like legends of Ninja falling on that, like I I had to get this mind space of like, if I try to do the same thing that they did, there's no way that I'm going to be able to beat this stage. So it's time to get weird, you know, it's time to get weird with it. So I had a couple of tricks up my sleeve and a couple of them I decided to go for like the, the salmon ladder move. Um, but I actually had another one planned on the wing nuts to skip the last wing nut, but on it, on the wing nut, I'm like, I'm not going to make it. So in like in the middle of the throw, I tried to change my tra- trajectory. Um, and it worked out, but it actually almost didn't. Cause I, I barely got my swing corrected in time to get to the final platform. But I, I just knew, like, I know my strengths and my weaknesses, and my weaknesses are my physical abilities. And my I think feel like my strengths are my willingness to go for some oh, stuff, I've some moves that, that maybe I other people aren't. So right I knew right I had so. to play to those strengths if I was going to make it through Stage 2.
2: So, Ethan, you keep talking about these legends uh. and... I personally feel like you are one of the best ninjas out there. So so who are you thinking of when you're naming guys that are legends or better than you? Um, because your stage two run, I feel like, definitely showed the world that, you know, you are one of the top guys.
1: Well, I certainly appreciate that, but it it just depends on the course so much. But there are so, like, I, I could name, sit here and name 20 athletes that I consider better than myself in a lot of ways. And I can name 20 more that are better than myself in, you know, a handful of things and there's just it's so crazy because depending on what the course is i could get absolutely crushed or a, di- a completely different course com- facing the same people i would expect myself to take first or second or third so um i don't know like the legends that i think about like watching stage two like i mean josh levin joe morowski daniel gill like those guys uh you know isaac caldero you know a-, a lesser known guy sean noel who is an absolute monster um you know, got to the wing nuts and, and couldn't get to the buzzer, unfortunately. But he obviously is very capable of doing so. And then you have guys that, that did get through that I consider legends that made it look effortless. You know, Jake Murray, Drew Dreschel, Jamie Ron was the first to break through. And then also coming out of nowhere, uh, you know, an 18-year-old crushing it and making it to stage three. It's like Johnny uh, Wilder. I think yes. a lot of people
2: were surprised by him.
1: Uh, you know, and and I I always hear everyone does like oh this person's awesome this person could do this, this person could do it I had never known Johnny um, but now everybody does and rightfully so he proved that he's an absolute beast um, beating out some of the best in the world and uh, and then making it to stage three and doing really well in stage three unfortunate DQ but I think he had a lot left in the tank he could have he could have really gone super far in that stage three I feel like.
0: So this is the first podcast that we've recorded since we announced that season four's championship is going to be at the Excel Center in Hartford. And this is going to be our first big event where we're going to have not only hopefully more athletes than we had at last year's finals, given that we have so many more qualifiers this year, but Mm -hmm. also where we'll have the youth competing in the same venue as well. So since you're the first ninja we've talked to, How do you think that kind of environment is going to differ from past World Championships where it's been held at one of our dedicated ninja facilities?
1: Uh, Well, I think having the adult and the youth in the same place is going to make it, I didn't think it would have been possible, but even more electric, because the the atmosphere last year, um, Season 3 World Finals, uh, was amazing. But now you're going to have all of these families and kids that are so dedicated to ninja in the same space as well, you know, competing and watching at the same time. I, I can't imagine what it's going to feel like. Um, on top of that, Drew Dreschel's is going to be designing the courses where you never know what he's going <laughs> to throw at you. So, you know, the courses are going to be amazing. Um, but yeah, I, I'm very, very much looking forward to it just because, you know, in an arena setting, you're going to have more space to work with. You're going to be able to do things exactly how you want to do. And, uh, and not have to fit what the gym allows you to do. I'm really excited for what you guys come up with.
2: Yeah, I think it's going to be uh, an awesome event. And one of the things that I'm most excited about, uh, which is probably unknown to most people, is the, the level of competition uh, is definitely going to be kicked up a notch. There's a lot of ninjas that used to compete back in the day that were unbelievably talented, but then stopped competing because uh, there wasn't as much going on. Now, all of a sudden, because it is in this colossal venue, I have all these ninjas hitting me up from the woodworks, getting back into the NNL. Um, There's more athletes from overseas that are excited about the huge venue. And I think this is going to be the biggest and most difficult world championship ever. Uh, How do you feel about, you know, just finding out now that there's going to be an increased level of competition at the finals?
1: Dude, that's that's amazing. <laughs> I love it. That's be <laughs> awesome. I'm sitting over here like literally jumping at my turn to to like answer that question. Uh that's 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 so cool. I mean, I think we all do this because we enjoy Ninja, we love the community. Um and a lot of us I think, you know, Christy, you're one of them do it cuz you love, you know, that highest level of competition and I, i even thought like last year at, uh, you know, season, season three of worlds, there were a handful of really, really high level ninjas that couldn't make it because, you know, American Ninja Warrior was filming the next weekend and they probably didn't want to get injured. But I think also the timing split too of this year's world finals being even earlier, I think you're going to get those people. I think everyone who is a top athlete should be there and probably will be there. It's going to be, it's going to be amazing. And, uh. I thought last year's courses were pretty tough. (laughs) So I guess uh, I'm in for a surprise this year. huh?
2: Ethan, do you have any favorites going in? I mean, you, you know, drew pretty well and you've, uh, you've seen what type of courses he puts together. Um, Do you think there's any athletes or like, you know, style of athlete that is going to be favored by a drew Dreschel course?
1: Oh man. Um, I think, I think what drew, it is going to be about efficiency. It's going to be about efficiency on something you've never seen before. So uh, with that is is the confidence to create a plan and just go 100% at your plan. Um, it sounds remember, like you're describing yourself. <laughs> well, no, I got – I ha- actually, Joe Morawski comes to mind. Like, he is the abs- – in my mind, he's the absolute best at having a plan and just being 100% aggressive at that plan and just destroying it. I think when he steps on a course, he, in his head, thinks there's no reason in the world that I'm not going to destroy this course. And I think it's, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and I, I overheard a conversation between him and drew, I think it was season, uh, it was season nine and, uh, it was, you know, the year that, that Joe had got last man standing and Joe said, I'm going to, they were talking about stage two and they're, uh, Joe said, I'm going to get on and off these obstacles as fast as possible. And he Freaking crushed it, and like you could see it on the wing nuts. Other people were burning out, having spent fifty-five seconds to a minute on the wing nuts, and I think he got off of them in thirty-five seconds. Um, But it's like it's just that that mentality, and I think Drew's going to create some stuff that's weird and crazy that we've never seen. And you got to come up with a plan and stick to it, and be super confident about it, or else you're just going to be stuck in no man's land on an obstacle. I I would pick Moravsky. I know that's not a very uh, um, ambitious um out there choice but he's just it's hard to go against him he's so good yeah definitely definitely a solid pick
0: i i'm glad we talked about course design a lot in there because as many of the listeners know we just had an event at ultimate ninja chicago i really shouldn't say we but the national ninja league had an event at ultimate ninja chicago you, of course, put together a really awesome course. I got a lot of really good feedback about it, and it was one of our biggest events as well, so we definitely had a lot of uh, really good reviews coming in. And I wanted to get in your head a little bit about how you designed that course. Uh, where do you draw inspiration for some of these creative obstacles?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, so I have uh, – it's it's so awesome being in Chicago just because um, Michael Torres works at – our gym in ultimate in Chicago. And then also Jesse LeBrec and Krista Ganji moved out here and they're part of another. Yeah, thanks location. for uh, stealing all of them. I, from me. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, but also I just now, want
2: to go on record and say just, that all of them used to live right around the New Jersey area uh, and they were awesome to have around the gym. And then Ethan up and took them from me.
1: <laughs> I I'm so sorry, but they're amazing. And, uh, and like the they level, t- they truly are yeah there's first of all, they're such really good people like they're just the nicest people in the world um, and then second, like as training partners it it ups training so much and so we are constantly you know I used to build courses for myself and like I was the only one building them in training, but then now with with all of them around and Towers of power Talia Amuchi, Mike Silenzi I mean the list goes on out here, there's so many creative people that are putting together new things and and I see what they do. And seeing these new ideas that I haven't come up with, am able to then come up with other things building off that, you know? Um, so, yeah, I, I it was it was so much fun building a course because I trained with all those guys so much. Um, building a course and keeping it secret from them and trying to stump them and come up with something new. But, uh, yeah, I wanted to really have some things that I hadn't seen before. And uh, I think that was kind of the downfall of the course a little bit. The Matrix, where you had to hold on to a ring and run along the side of a wall on pads. Took out, oh man, I took out Jesse Lebrecht, took out Kirsty Pratt, took out Mike Salenzi, Mike McKenzie, Dan Polizzi, and I mean, there's a bunch more that went out of that, but I was not happy with uh, <laughs> with, with the difficulty that I made that obstacle specifically.
2: See, I, I don't know if I'm the best person to, to be saying this because people always fail my first obstacle, but I absolutely <laughs> love that obstacle. I, I thought it was one of the best obstacles we've seen. It looked like so much oh, fun. It was you. very dynamic. Um, it was definitely one of my my favorite N&L courses. And oh, I I, I, you, I, pro- I probably shouldn't say this because as president, I should, you know, be unbiased and love all N&L courses equally. Um, but yours <laughs> was definitely one of my favorites to watch this season.
1: Well, I appreciate that a lot. I well, I I figured we'd have some really really good athletes out. People were telling me, and unfortunately, we actually had some other amazing athletes drop out at the last minute. So, um, you know, hopefully, we're we're planning on hopefully having some more in Chicago this year, um, schedule permitting. But I I will not be running the course or uh, setting up the courses. But Mike Salenzi will be setting up one in Libertyville. Hopefully, if we can get that on schedule, and then Jesse Lebrecht and Chris was setting up another one in Naperville. And I would imagine we're probably gonna have a bigger turnout for those because now that people know we're, we're hosting NNLs in Chicago, I you know, I'd like to think people want to come out, but. Um, I,
2: I definitely think that people will come out, especially if you, you know, after the first course and having one of the best courses of the season. Um, and actually, I want to ask you another question about it. You, you talked yeah. about, like, all these high-level athletes that were there, kirsty Jesse, um, Daganji. um, How do you gauge the difficulty? Like, I feel like that's a thing that a lot of event coordinators um, struggle with is, you know, gauging that difficulty and making sure that it's spot on so that it's not too hard, not too easy, and you kind of hit that, you know, that sweet spot.
1: Yeah, it's tough. It is very tough. And it's something I stress about a lot all the time, especially even for kids' courses. like. Uh, is this jump too hard? Is it too easy? I want it to, you know, be that perfect level of difficulty. Kids feel challenged and adults feel challenged, but not where like, hey, this is too easy or wow, like no one can beat this thing. Um, I'm sure you do the same thing at your your events, but um, you know, it's it's really nice having Torres here too to help me because we can go back and forth about level of difficulty. I know his strengths and weaknesses, and like if he's making an explosive move look easy. I'm like, well, that's Torres. He's an explosive monster. So yes. maybe you have to probably the- dial it back from Torres. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So him and I were running through it and, uh, and trying to, you know, make changes and stuff. But also the, I think the hardest thing is that with a completely new obstacle, like the matrix, once we've tried it a couple times, we can never get back to that spot of trying it for the first time. Never, you'll never do it. So trying to keep in mind that first try along with all those changes you've made, um, it's, it's really difficult. And I don't know if I've got it perfect yet. And I I think the answer is no, because I took out so many people with the matrix, but trying to always get better. Um, I think it's really, really nice being a competitor myself and then having Torres as a competitor as well. So we can use ourselves as gauges for for everyone else. You know,
2: That's a pretty high gauge though. You got to be careful with that.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but I, I expect the best at it. Like, I don't know. There's some amazing athletes here that I, once again, consider stronger than myself in a lot of ways. When we go climbing, Jesse Lebrecht and Krista Gangi will outclimb me more times than not. And so will Mike Salenzi. And then when you talk about Dan Pelizzi and Mike McKenzie being here, those guys' upper body strength is out of this freaking world compared to me. So I think there's checks and balances. And so... Um, you know, there's certain things that I consider I'm better at than the people that came out here, but there's a lot more things that I think they're better at compared to me. Um, so yeah, when I'm running the course, I try to keep all that in mind, strengths and weaknesses. versus So would
2: you say that you lean a little more towards the elite though, where you're like, you want to, you know, bring out the best in the athletes and make them really work for it?
1: Yeah. And so that goes back to what I said before is like, I think if there are one or two or three finishers, that's way more special. Because when that person finishes, everyone is watching like just on the edge of their seats, standing up. Like, I'm actually getting chills thinking about Chris Gange's run. We had zero finishers, but Chris was by far the closest. And he was on the last obstacle with like five or six seconds left and had to, he had to make a dismount. And it was going to be close. You could tell. And if he had time for one more swing, he would have cleared no problem. But he didn't. And he had to go for it. And he knew it. And he threw for it and hit the landing pad on the corner and just barely fell backwards as time ran out. And everyone was going crazy. The gym was absolutely insane. And that kind of moment is exactly what I want. I wanted there to be some close, you know, close calls, a close finish, you know. Um, I. <laughs> you're giving. I wish you're giving it had gone the kills other way but... over
2: here. I'm, I'm like excited thinking about it. I can, I can picture the atmosphere. I feel like that's what yeah. Ninja's all about.
0: I'm about to start running laps around my apartment.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 don't do that. Let, let, let's ask Ethan about, uh, about designing the flow first.
0: Sure. So, thank you for the transition. I want to ask about course flow because we've watched Ninja for a number of years. I've been watching it for over a decade. There's a sort of template for a lot of these courses. Like on a city finals course, you know, the eighth obstacle is going to be really pumpy. The ninth obstacle is going to be really pumpy. If you look at a stage one, you're going to have your steps. You're going to have your big centerpiece in the middle. You're going to have some sliding obstacles and a climb at the end. But for the National Ninja League, when we have our qualifiers, there's such a huge variety. And it's still relatively in its infancy that there's not really a template yet. So oh, yeah. a lot of finding course flow is a lot more free form. So how do you work through that where you don't really have a template, but you still want to make sure the course flows nicely and it makes sense going from one obstacle to the next?
1: Yeah, and so I think I start with the the bigs is what I call them. And that's, that's the obstacles that I think are going to be new, exciting, and, and the ones that people are going to look at and go, wow, I really, really want to try that. Um, and so I think we had three obstacles or maybe maybe four that people were really like, Oh man, that looks amazing. And I want to do it matrix. Definitely. Um, we had the loaded ropes, which is I think our fifth obstacle, which it is, is so, ah, I was so happy with how it turned out. Cause I wanted to force people to really have to decide between launching or reaching static and burning more energy, but having a more controlled move, you know, but, um, that one, the loaded, that loaded second rope added like a, a level of dynamic to that obstacle that I was really happy with. Um, but then, uh, you know, we had the canes in there and then the last obstacle being, you know, similar to what we saw at the end of stage one on American Ninja Warrior. Um, so those four elements, I really wanted them to be spread out in the course because I, I, um, I didn't want to have a really cool new element that everyone wanted to try that was just at the end. And then, you know, two or three or no people got there. So I wanted to have at least a couple things that were new that a lot of people got to try during their course run. Um, So I start with those and then I try to fill in the gaps based on that because I think those are the highlights. Um, And then from there, I start to fill in the gaps. I'm like, okay, this is where it can go inside the course. How do I structure those obstacles? And then I play with the difficulty to try to make it that, you know, great level difficulty where the beginning obstacles are easier and it slowly gets harder and harder until the last obstacles are like you got to be you got to be busting your butt for you know the last year or two or more to really have a chance at beating this course in my mind um but that's just the way i do it. and i've seen so many people do it differently and i think it's great that that you guys have set up a format where not every every course is the same not every competition is the same because that's the whole spirit of ninja you don't know what you're going to get when you show up and you got to be prepared for anything
2: i think anything is having it, you know, the ability to do anything is really cool. And it offers, you know, opportunities for great courses. Um, But again, you know, not all courses are created equal, you know, in a gym, it's very easy to get a course that like zigs and zags and gets super confusing or is too hard early on. For example, every one of my qualifiers and they miss some of the fun stuff in the middle. Um, I have to say, I really, really enjoy your format and I really enjoy the flow when i was watching i think it was actually your run through the course um the whole thing flew like the way that you moved throughout the uh, facility um it, like everything seemed seamless like how do you get that connection like i know the other stuff makes sense you know kind of go easier mm-hmm. to harder but how do you get it so that like you know it seems like each step matters and you're never like you know going in different directions or getting confused with your path
1: yeah well the going in different directions actually is something that i take super serious because there's the You know, if you have a landing pad that someone lands on going one direction and the next obstacle is behind you, then now you bring in the question of, you know, the gray area is if someone lands on the pad and turns around and goes backwards, that's controlled. But what if someone lands on it, quickly turns and goes backwards? Did they, were they actually going to fall back and turned around and, and move towards the next obstacle? It becomes a really fine line. Yeah, and I don't want to have to make any calls. I don't want to have to make any calls at all during my competition. I want everything to be black and white, which is a great wish to have. You know, it'd be great if every comp ran like that. But, you know, I think no matter what the course is, you're probably going to have to make some calls sometimes. But um, I want to at least design the course so that there's as few of those opportunities as possible. So I think it's really important that if I design an obstacle to land somewhere, that the next obstacle after that is Beyond that, because like you're saying for flow, you just keep moving that direction. And then also for judging, I just tell them, hey, here's the land, here's the landing platform, you land on or past it, I don't even care if you touch the pad, if you launch past it four feet, that's a clear in my mind. Um, And so then I don't have to worry about people, you know, you know, stepping on it and looking at me and waiting for a clear because then I might not be judging clears exactly the same between competitors and maybe during some competitors run, it took me a half second longer to say clear than somebody else's and that made a difference in the final, you know, timing. Um, I don't know, man, I, I, I I drew up and scrapped so many courses with Torres for that competition that, uh, you know, it's like we got like 80% decided on what a course would be. And then we both sat there like, no, this doesn't work for this reason, that reason, that reason. And we looked at each other like, are we really going to redesign this? And we're both like, yeah, we have to. You know, we, <laughs> wanted it to be, we wanted it to be the best. But like we were like we both side is like, oh, we have so much more work to do. But also we wanted to do it, you know.
2: Well, I mean, it shows. It shows your your course was fluid. It, you know, like you said, there wasn't uh, spots where you ha- had to make those tough judgment calls uh, and, and really one of the best, best courses this season.
1: Well, thank you. That actually means a lot to me. And I'm going to share that with uh, with Torres, if that's okay with you, because uh, we worked pretty hard on it. We're Thank you. Oh, <laughs> yeah. please do. Please do.
2: Yeah, let him know. Uh, but let him know that I'm still salty that he moved away. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he actually said it. He uh, uh He's like, oh, well, until Krista said hi, he's like, hope he still likes me after <laughs> coming out here. <laughs> o- only a little, just a tiny bit yeah. less. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough.
0: So, speaking of Torres and Daganji and Lebrecht and Slensy, I know you've name-dropped a bunch of your fellow Ultimate (laughs) Ninjas peers. Didn't mean
2: to name-drop, but no. But that's
0: that's good, because I actually wanted to talk about Ultimate Ninjas. Um, Right now there are three. There's one in Chicago, one in Naperville, one in Libertyville, uh, all in the Illinois area. So, do you think that someday we'll see Ultimate Ninjas go out to say California that far, or is it more of like a, we want to build the Midwest?
1: Well, we, we want to uh, make sure that what we're doing, we do right. Um, my biggest fear is I have a lot of fears, but one of them is, uh, is that we'll expand out too quickly. And then we <laughs> lose some of what I think makes us special and makes, you know, our programs good. Um, so we're, we're taking it slow and making sure we do things what we think is right, but we actually have in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, Kirsty Pratt is opening up our fourth location, and that's going to be in early November. So uh, really excited about that, but it's not quite California, but that's like our first baby step out of Chicago, and so we're going to see how that goes and hopefully then move, move past that. And an L podcast exclusive. Right. You heard it here first, folks.
2: (laughs) I was going to ask, you know, you guys obviously really do have a a great program. I've been out there. It's an awesome place to be. Um, How did you guys kind of come to be? Like what uh, what brought you all together? What got you started with uh, Ultimate Ninjas?
1: Oh, man, it's actually for me, a crazy story. Um, I was actually an actuary in Chicago, you know, desk job. I loved it. And uh, Karen Sabo. (laughs) had gotten connected through Carson Williams with a guy's name is Jeff Pijak. He's the owner of ultimate ninjas. And she had told me, you got to talk to this guy. You have to talk to him. Like he's doing a thing here. He's he's starting up a ninja gym. And I had never heard this guy's name. And you know, I was like, ah, you know, I don't know who is he? And he's like, she's like, oh, he's a, he's an entrepreneur. He's a a father. He's a husband. And he's doing this. I said, okay, well, where's he getting his obstacles through? And she goes, he's doing adventure solutions. And I immediately went, I don't care. I don't want to talk to this guy. Um, Cause I figured he was a money guy that was going to throw money at something and try to be the corporate life. And I just, that's not what I wanted to do with Ninja. Um, But Karen had met the guy and knew it was a little different. So she kept, every time I saw her, it's like, you got to talk to him. It's like, Karen, I already told you, I don't want to. And she just, she knew better than I did, rightfully so. And she kept, you know, going at me with it until finally, I'm like, Karen, if I meet with him, Will you stop bugging me about this? She goes, Yes. <laughs> so I, I had dinner with Jeff, and within the first five minutes, I realized how dead wrong I was about him. Um, and so then from there I I jumped on board and one of the first things he said to me was, How can we how can we make this the best that it can be? And he really trusts me to be the ninja expert here, which I value so much because he he believes in me and he relies on my experience and I've heard so many horror stories about other places that necessarily don't do that. So I feel very fortunate in that way, but I told him like, it'd be great to have a camp where we have a bunch of ninjas come out and, you know, be with the kids and sign autographs and, you know, do camps and stuff. He said, make it happen in two months. I was like, ah, okay. Um, So then I reached out to a bunch of different people. One of those was Jesse Labreck who came out and I'd actually, uh, this was after season eight and I was not a big name. Uh, at all and I still don't consider myself a big name but like no one even knew who I was at that point I had never done a national ninja league competition um which I look back and think I'm crazy not to have because I love it now <laughs> I go to everyone I can um but like Jesse LeBrec, this is after season eight and I had made it to stage two she didn't even know who I was and she turns to Daganji goes hey he just invited me out to a camp who is he and deganji <laughs> goes I don't know but there's a picture of him <laughs> on stage two so who is he? Like what the, but then <laughs> she came out and it was, it was great. And she's awesome. We had a bunch of other ninjas out and found out that she had an interest in, uh, in being a gym owner slash manager. And it kind of was history from there. Got Mike Salenzi on board, got Torres on board and, you know, now Kirsty, And I think it just kind of was domino effect after that. And people will meet Jeff and, and realize that he's the real deal and, and actually gives a crap, which uh, is, I think something that's pretty rare out of people that aren't ninjas themselves and maybe i'm a pessimist but um but he's proven to me time and time again that that he he cares a lot about ninjas and the ninja community which um i feel very fortunate to be hooked up with him and i think he's the reason that uh, ultimate ninjas is the way it is because if we had a different owner it could be so different
2: and I'll be honest, it makes me feel a little better about the fact that you stole all my friends and brought them to Chicago. <laughs> At least you guys are doing something good with it.
1: Uh, well, thank you. I mean, I, I think I think everyone's pretty happy out here. Uh, I know I am. And uh, if you would have told me five years ago that I'd be doing this for a living, I would have told you you're crazy. And uh, I just, I don't know, I feel very fortunate. And to be able to share that with other ninjas, It's I think it's great that that nowadays people are making a living off of ninja. And being happy to do so, I think you know. Years ago, it just didn't happen. I mean, you opened the first ninja gym in the country, and people were jacked about it. But I, I know that must have been extremely hard to do. And it's, I think, because of you, a lot of people were able to piggyback off of what you did and realize what's possible. So, dude, I mean, I mean, I the it would not be the same if it weren't for you with the NNL and Movement Lab. By the way, I got to come out to a Movement Lab NNL at some point because. Your competitions look insanely difficult, and that was awesome. <laughs> yeah, after Thanksgiving,
2: exactly. But thank uh, you for that, man. Thank you for the kind words. I definitely, yeah. definitely appreciate it. We're trying over here. We want to make this thing a sport. It
1: shows. It shows, man. So I want to talk a little bit about
0: you as a competitor. Um, you seem to have this obstacle efficiency, we'll call it, where you have a really good body awareness. You're able to make these, you know, huge moves that not a lot of other people are able to do. And when I think about body awareness, I think of, you know, your Drew Dreschels, your Flip is who come from more of a parkour background. So I wanted to talk to you, see about where you feel that you get your body awareness.
1: Uh, Well, just being compared to those two is... Uh, thank you. Um, I don't think I'm on the same playing field, but... um, No, I I, uh, <clears throat> I grew up playing soccer which doesn't really have much to do with body awareness. But in high school, I uh, I started doing gymnastics. And I was always the kid that, you know, didn't really have good form, but I would just chuck stuff. I would just throw it, see what happened. And sometimes it would work out and most of the time it would not. But I feel like I learned so much about body awareness because I would just I would just try whatever. I would literally, we had this book of, uh, of moves and it was just like these drawings and describing what the moves are and the point value. And I would look through every move that I thought I could do and I would try them. Um, and I think that definitely helped me a lot. But I think actually, what helped me even more than that is, um, is my first season of the NNLs I did, which was season two. Uh, I qualified at the edge in my first competition, and I did a bunch more that year. I think I did four more, uh, qualifiers, which for the Midwest is a lot. I know the East Coast is jam packed, there's tons of gyms and tons of competitors out there, but for the Midwest, especially back then, um, that felt like to me a lot. So after I qualified, you know, I, I get nervous for every freaking event I do. I, you know, I don't know how I can get rid of it, but at this point I've just, you know, succumbed to it and been like, okay, I'm going to be nervous. I, I understand that. And it doesn't matter if it's, you know, a local competition that isn't even associated with any league um, or if it's, you know, the NNL World Finals or if it's American Ninja Warriors Stage 2 or whatever. I get nervous all the time. Um, so I really, really think that the most important thing is controlling those nerves. So I do a lot of what I call fear training, um, which in the gym, you can never recreate those nerves, those competition nerves, but unless you have something at risk. And, uh, so I'll set up some stuff and granted, I only do this because I have tons and tons of years of training and I feel very comfortable with myself, but I'll set up stuff that maybe, you know, is a little higher up than usual, or maybe it makes me a little nervous, but gets me in that feeling of like, I'm scared to do this thing. Let's see how my body reacts. Um, And so I did that season two with the NNL, where once I'd qualified, I was going to these other competitions and I know I'd already qualified. So there wasn't as much at risk. And so I would look at obstacles and go, oh, well, maybe I could do it this way, but it'd be more conservative and better to do it, you know, the, the slower methodical way. And then I started thinking, well, no. I'm going to go for this stuff because right now these are awesome competitions, but also I'm nervous and I might be at a point in another competition where I don't have a choice and I have to try something that I'm uncomfortable with. So as long as something, you know, has a payoff and you know, saves in efficiency or saves in time, I will go for it a lot of times more often than not, because I know that the training, like the the mental payoff or payout of doing those things is much greater than not. At the end of a season, if I've done that ten times throughout four competitions, versus if I went conservative, I feel like my training has elevated uh, my skill level because I've gone for those moves. And I—that's I, something I subscribe to—is the mental side of things uh, way more than the physical side of things. But that's
2: just I feel me. like yeah, I feel like it really shows when watching watching you move. And I actually, um, Naj was in the gym last night, and I was chatting with him about this. And, uh, he actually said, like, you should ask Ethan about, um, like some of the fear stuff that Ethan does. And I was like, oh no, that's not really our style podcast. We want to get into the nitty gritty of like the training and what, you know, what defines his training and, you know, be more specific to that than like the fierce, like stunts and stuff that you do. Uh, mm-hmm. cause I know that you do all these different stunts that are wild and nuts, but it's really interesting to hear that you use, um, fear in your training to control the nerves and give you more obstacle experience uh, because your obstacle efficiency is like off the, like off the radar. Like it's like, like I have no idea how one athlete can have so much obstacle efficiency. And I know we compared you to, you know, Drew and uh, Naj, um, but I think each of you has a very different style. Um, like I think Naj might be so powerful uh, and like, oh, you know, light just because he's so strong <laughs> and Drew, Drew kind of has a combination of the two. But, um, it sounds like yours comes solely from that obstacle repetition uh and you know doing things that would otherwise you know make another athlete ner- nervous like you're you're gonna take the risk and it kind of builds this repertoire does that sound right or
1: yeah i I think so um the The crazy thing is like I'm on Instagram a ton and i I always watch to try to get inspiration from other people, you know whether they're a&W competitors, NL competitors are just, you know, kids in gyms or, you know, training whatever, or a backyard or whatever. Um, but I, I see, it scares me because I see some of these kids and some of these younger athletes doing things that I know I can't do. Physically, I cannot do them. And I'm thinking like, holy crap, I'm going to get my butt whooped at every competition I go to. But the, the the crazy thing is some of these people that are so skilled, so powerful, so strong, I think, give into those nerves. Um, And as soon as I feel like as soon as they learn that you have to just go for it, sometimes like you have to not be conservative, you have to be aggressive. It's like what Moravsky said, stage two, season nine, he's like, I'm going to get on and off this obstacle as fast as possible. And I think that like that quote from him has resonated with me so much. I think about it all the time, because. He's right. Is him if if someone decided to be more conservative and take each extra swing on the wing nuts, you're they're burning out, and then they boom, they're done. They didn't they didn't make it through uh, stage two because of that. Um, and it's that decisions like it's it's like deciding I'm gonna be safer, but being safer literally just gives them a zero percent chance of beating the course. Um, I know not every course is like that, but uh, it's. In those longer courses, courses that are three, four, five, six minutes, I, you know, every obstacle that you're off of it five seconds earlier, now you're ahead in time and you're ahead in how much energy you have left. And that's something I, I try to subscribe to as much as possible.
2: I feel like uh, getting on and off is one of those things that's kind of easier said than done. <laughs> if, you, if Yeah, if, if, yeah in theory, we'd all love to get off the obstacles super fast. Um yeah if you had a new client or a new athlete in the gym and you were trying to tell them, you know, how to train efficiency and how to, you know, you know, train like you, like, what would you tell them? What would you tell somebody new um, to kind of build this, you know, the skill set that you have?
1: Yeah, so I think, uh, I, and I have tons of new people come in the gym all the time. And, and I always tell them literally first thing is, do you want advice? Cause I know not everyone wants advice and some people want to just, you know, go at it and try things themselves, which is great. So I know I try not to give people advice as much um, as possible unless they actually ask for it. Um, but if they do ask for it, then I tell them there's, there's millions of ways to get through all these obstacles. You know, some of these obstacles, like ring toss is a perfect example is I've seen people locking off through ring toss and it's very impressive, but like, geez, like that's, <laughs> that's going to kill you for the next obstacle. But You know, you could do side to side, which is, you know, you're facing the same direction, just going click, 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 click across. And that I feel like is the easiest technical approach. So I might have people get used to that. And then once they're used to that and their movement is good with their swing, then I would have them start swinging through like almost monkey bar style because it's so much quicker, so much more efficient. But it's kind of like that, you know, whatever someone feels more comfortable with at the start is the best way for them to learn. And then once they get comfortable with their ways, then stepping out of their comfort zone and trying all different kinds of ways. I think salmon ladders is, is another great example is there. I mean, Naj is, is perfect. Like he goes backwards in full reverse grip, not even mixed grip. And I don't see anybody else do that, but that's what he likes. I would never do that in a competition, but for him, that's the best way he can do it. For me, it's probably the worst way to do it because I'm not comfortable with it and I don't like it. Um, <laughs> but I, I train, going up forwards, you know, facing normal with mixed grip. I train going backwards mixed grip. I train, you know, the Wilczewski whip. Hey-o. Um, <laughs> hey, shout out. But, uh, <laughs> you know, going down facing both ways, you know, complete normal grip, complete reverse grip, just because no matter, like if you're on a course that allows you to make a move and if you can recognize the move, that's step one. But if you're not prepared for the move, which is step two, then you probably shouldn't do it. And I think a lot of that efficiency comes in preparing all types of different ways to get through obstacles, because if somebody sets it up in a way you'd never thought about before, that preparing that you've done might give you the, the skill that you need to be able to do it. I mean, stage two and world final season three, the only reason I was able to do that move on the salmon ladder was because I trained it. I would definitely have never tried it without training it before. And, uh, I think it helped make a difference for me. I don't know if that answers your question. I tend to go on tons of tangents. I'm sorry.
2: Oh no, I this think is good. I, this is good. I, th- I think it really did. I think it I think it hit exactly what the beginners would need to know. You know, to build your skill set. I think it was great.
0: So regarding your own training, especially for the world championship, you just qualified uh, this past weekend at Iron Grip when we were recording this. If you had to pick one thing that you really wanted to focus on over the next couple of months as we gear up for the world championship. What do you you really want to work on in your training?
1: Yeah. And so I've been focusing on that pretty much the last couple of months, but it is 100% um, strength and explosiveness. Um, I'd I'd like to think I, I know my strengths and weaknesses and I know for sure one of my weaknesses, you know, when I compare myself to top athletes is my explosiveness, upper body, um, when it comes to, you know, bicep explosiveness and then also finger grip explosiveness. So, um, and it's like having Torres out here doesn't help at all because that just highlights it even more. He's an absolute freak of nature. I don't know. I don't know what you guys fed him out there in the East Coast for so long, but geez, dude is strong. He, um,
2: he's from the far south jersey i think he grew up near a power plant or something he's got some radioactive <laughs> powers because uh, I, I when when him and naj work. were in the building it just between the two of them i was just like okay well i used to think i was explosive not anymore <laughs>
1: yeah yeah uh and i train with him almost every day and it's it's the it's the best and the worst at the same time um but yeah so like that highlights i need to be more explosive so i've been doing a lot more explosivity training. Upper body what types wise. of stuff are
2: you doing like um you know you say explosivity training uh what is it that you're actually tackling to try to build that skill set
1: Yeah so I I realized that uh, and I realized this last year that I am so bad at lockoffs like I used to be if I hung by you know two arms at 90 degrees and I took one hand off I would just go straight down I couldn't even hold a lockoff for a split second um and I th- I realized that that's because of my training I realized that If I look at a pegboard and say, what's the most efficient way to go through that? I'm going to go straight our monkey bars through it. But because of that, because training that for years and years, I never developed the muscles necessary to muscle through it, which if I'm on a speed course against Adam rail. Now, my most efficient way is the way to guarantee that I lose, Um, (laughs) you know, I mean, nowadays with with some speed courses and stuff that exists, like you need to you need to be able to go through fast and explosive or else you don't even have a chance. so, yeah, I, I, uh, I'm i working on, you know, pegboard trying to stay locked off and make aggressive moves left to right at high speed. I'm working on, uh, you know, salmon ladder trying to stay at 90 while moving up. I do what I call Yamauchi, or Yamauchi pull-ups because Tyler Yamauchi is another absolute monster whose upper body explosiveness is just through the roof. But um, I saw him doing pull-ups, and he would never come down past, like, like, a little past 90 degrees, but he would never go to straight arm. And I was like, why are you doing pull-ups like that? That's, like, bad form by a lot of people's standards. And he goes, well, you know, uh, on American Ninja Warrior, you're you're either going to have to be straight arm and use your hips, or you're going to have to be, a, like, a little kink in your arms and use your hips and your biceps to really go up super high. And he's like, "I can, I know how to use my hips. I did gymnastics for years. So – I don't see any reason to train that. I'm going to do keep my biceps engaged all the time while I do pull-ups. And so that way I'm just working on that that upper body explosiveness and upper body fatigue a lot more during pull-ups. And as soon as you say that, I'm like, God, I'm such an idiot for training the opposite way for so long.
2: Well, I feel like it's a, it, it's a common thing to think, uh, you know, go all the way up, all the way down, full range of motion. Um, yeah. But actually, um, James McGrath was the first one who – kind of let me into that insight and showed me that like a lot of the Japanese competitors will do the exact same thing when they're training for Sasuke is they'll do like the, what we would consider a half rep, but it's actually really, really helpful when it comes to ninja training.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. And McGrath, another guy that's upper body is just so explosive. And I mean, just, I look at those guys and I'm like, "Ah, if I could just be even half of what they are upper body wise, like explosiveness, I'd be happy, you know? Um, So that, and then couple that with a lot of bouldering, um, because no joke that uh, the two guys that have ever beaten American enjoy are both pretty solid rock climbers. I think there's no uh, there's no delusion there that if you're not uh, you don't have that finger strength, you're not really going to have a chance to beat into stage three. You know.
2: Well, I think a good question that you know, it should come from the rock climbing. Cause like, I think a lot of people don't understand that there's so many different styles of climbing, even if you're just bouldering, there's different ways that you can boulder or train bouldering. So what, does what like a typical rock climbing workout look like for you? Like how, how do you boulder?
1: Um, so I am probably, I'm definitely not the best person to to ask you know what my bouldering and rock climbing uh training is like but i i honestly go and just play i'll go climb with jesse and chris and and torres and salenzi and we'll we'll warm up for a while and then we'll we'll try to get up to in, you know our hardest climbs and work that for a while and then uh and then cool down but i've been talking to jake murray and he loves campus board training and so i've been starting to do some campus board training where he's like hey go to the gym warm up and just do campus board it's like it's not as fun but if you want to get stronger, working those small rails on a campus board is the way to do it. Um, so I've been doing that a little bit.
2: Did Jake and- give you any workouts for it, or are you just going going nuts and having fun?
1: He, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, uh, on a campus board, you shouldn't go nuts because that is the quickest way to get injured is like your tendons and your fingers are so fine and small that if you go nuts on a campus board or you do a campus board the wrong way, you're going to get injured so fast. And that's like a six month recovery. If you blow a tendon on a finger and like have fun getting back into ninja after that. Um, But so so no, don't go crazy
2: on the campus board,
1: right? Do not go crazy on the campus board. Look up some YouTube videos, look up some sustained workouts, like, Real researched workouts. Um, Jake gave me some some tips on it, and then I also did a lot of research on uh, on just YouTube and different websites and people who are so good at rock climbing and what they do um, to ease into it. and uh, And I still have so much more research to do. So I don't even want to say what I do because I don't want to, you know, I, I'm still learning, and I don't want to tell someone to do the wrong thing.
2: All right. So disclaimer. Check check your local climbing guru (laughs) google it um but you didn't hear from Ethan
1: (laughs) right ask people that are not me because I'm not good at rock climbing so
0: let's talk a little bit about uh dieting because that goes hand in hand with training and sort of you know building your ultimate health for ninja do you have a particular diet that you espouse to uh
1: you know, it's so funny because uh, I do have a not not super particular. There's some people that are really really trained on their diet. And then there's others that are like so opposite. Jamie Ron doesn't touch anything that's green, which is kind of hilarious when you think about it. But uh, and he's amazing. You know what I mean? I've heard some other athletes that are like so good are uh, their diets are just so bad. But for me, I have like I think I have a good mix. Is I eat you know generally pretty healthy. Um, and uh, and I still will cheat every now and then. I feel like it's good for the soul, you know <laughs> but, uh, but no, I, I know it's hilarious because even a couple of years ago, my worst enemy was myself and my knowledge is that I would just listen to like mainstream like, oh, this is good for you. Oh, yeah, you know, breakfast is the most important meal of the day, Oh, milk is good for you, that kind of thing. And I didn't do any research, I didn't ask people, and I, I used to um, until, until 2017, I was drinking two gallons of milk a week, which I found out is like absolutely terrible for you. It's so bad. It's also that's like, an
2: insane amount of milk.
1: Yeah, right? well, like, I, I thought it was to, good.
0: I have to throw out half gallons. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but the thing is, like, because I thought it was good for me, it was the like I was the worst. I thought it was good, so I made myself like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna have more of this. I'm going to do this thing that I. Think is good for me, and then when I found out it wasn't, it's was like I just I quit right away. Like I I don't really drink milk anymore um at all because it's not like that I loved milk. It was that I thought it was really good for me and it was good for my training and my diet. And so, oh, man, I'm still learning so much. Like I learned so much from like Brandon Mears, part of the Towers of Power, is unreal. And like you, you he takes his shirt off on American Ninja Warrior like during an NNL, and you can obviously tell he's ripped out of his freaking mind. Um, and I like to say there's a reason I keep my shirt on uh during competitions, <laughs> and it's Brandon and Dan, Pelizzi. Um, but uh but those those two guys, their diets are absolutely amazing. So I'll ask them for for help. But I I try my best. If I could wrap it up in like a couple things, I'd say, you know, try to stay away from dairy as much as possible, try to stay away from sugar as much as possible. Those two things are the absolute biggest for me. Um and then I try to stay away from inflammatories. Uh, as much as possible, like tomatoes, I found out were inflammatory and I had tomatoes on like all my sandwiches. Um, cause we like just so high impact and beats you up so much that if you're adding to that by inflaming your muscles with your diet, then it makes it even harder to recover, harder to get back in the gym the next day.
2: So give me, give me a sample day. Like what did you eat yesterday? Like breakfast, lunch, dinner?
1: Yeah. So I do, uh, I alternate every between doing like, you know, egg, sweet potato, um, like scramble with some salsa and stuff. And then like yesterday I had, uh, instead of that, I had a smoothie, which is like almond milk, uh, spinach, apple cider vinegar, um, some, uh, Greek yogurt, which is a little bit of dairy I know, but a little bit's okay. Uh, and then like flax chia seeds, a bunch of like acai and good stuff in there too. Um, and then I, I take a bunch of vitamins and stuff as well, just like, cause I work in a gym so much. So I take vitamin D because I don't, I don't get to see the sun, <laughs> <laughs> just, <laughs> which is hilarious, but like, it's good to know, you know? Um, and then uh, for lunch, I'll usually have like some kind of like, um, like Asian food or like sushi or um, some kind of like rice, vegetable, chicken, um, like mixture. And then uh, for dinner, I'll just have some kind of, like higher protein, um, like chicken with like a side that's like a lot of vegetables type of thing. But like that's pretty much my, my typical day. And th- throughout the day, I'll have like some like a protein shake if I'm working out or some snacks here and there kind of thing. But um, like almonds, nuts, stuff like that. So I think it's pretty vanilla when you when you talk about diet, like it's nothing crazy. But I also do cheat. I also like, you know, I live in Chicago. I got to have pizza every once in a while.
2: Yep, yep. Uh, Got to have I'd, the deep dish.
1: I'd uh, I'd go crazy without it, but um, <laughs> I try to do moderation more than anything.
2: I definitely think those are those are some solid tips, so though. That, that that's enough for for the listeners to go off of. Uh, I I found it super helpful, and I'm already hungry right now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> for deep dish or for for good stuff?
2: <laughs> well, it was the healthy stuff, and then you keep bringing up deep dish, so it's going to oh. change soon.
1: <laughs> come out, both of you guys, come out to Chicago. And we'll have some deep dish. We'll get some training in. It'll be a blast. It'll be a good time.
2: Open. Uh, that sounds amazing. That, I, next time.
0: I I was in Chicago last year and loved it. So I can't wait to get back out again. So ho- hopefully, hopefully, I'll make
1: it out soon. Nice. You were in Chicago and didn't let me know? Wow. I mean, this was like that, a year and a half. That hurts, day. Alex. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, well, speaking of Chicago, um, we're we're about at our time so we're going to wrap it up um you know we want you to have an opportunity to tell the people you know what what you what are you working on where can people find you all that fun stuff so what do you want your closing remarks to be
1: yeah uh ultimate injuries in chicago is where i'm at but we have you know two locations chicago area st louis is coming soon come on by we have kids programs adult programs it's i mean i'm biased but it's a freaking blast um and yeah, and then we're working on getting a couple more NNLs on the schedule for this season, season four uh, in Libertyville uh, and also Naperville. So so come on out. It's, uh, I don't know, come out, hang out, train. We'll set up some weird stuff, some uh, challenging stuff. It's, it'll be a good time.
2: <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you for, uh, for joining us today.
1: Oh, thank you guys for having me. Yeah, you uh, so much. It's so cool. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime.
0: My thanks to Ethan Swanson for coming on the podcast. I know that ran a little long, but I didn't have it in my heart to cut any of it. It was such an awesome chat with Ethan, and I hope you learned a lot at home. So I want to talk to you guys a bit about the 2019 National Ninja League World Championships going down in Hartford just two weekends from now. It's going to be a three-stage course. Stages one and two are simply get through every obstacle within the allotted time limit. doesn't matter if you're faster or slower than any of the other competitors just matters that you beat the course. Stage 3 is where it all goes down. Whoever gets the furthest the fastest on Stage 3, or if we have multiple people beat the course, whoever beats the course the fastest, will be crowned the world champion of Ninja for 2019. Is this the year that we finally see a pro athlete beat Stage 3? We certainly hope so at the NNL. We know you guys have been training super hard all year, and this is going to be the biggest level of competition we have ever had. Every single obstacle is going to be handcrafted by DGS, uh, Deary's Gymnastics Supply. They're one of our big sponsors this year, along with Monstro Ninja Holds and Ninja Works, all three of them doing awesome stuff for the ninja community, and we want to thank them for helping out. And just to help you get in the mood for the World Championships, we're going to have another podcast for you next week Chris and I sat down with our Season 2 Women's Champion, Alyssa Beard. She had a lot to say about balancing her life as a ninja and as a teacher, and we really hope that this is the interview for you. If you're having trouble finding time to go ninja training, having some work-life balance problems, this is such a good interview. I highly recommend it. That will be coming at you next week. And in the meantime, you can catch up with all of the ninja runs you missed this season on our YouTube page at National Ninja League. Of course, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at National Ninja League, both places. And of course, check out our website, NationalNinja.com, to get more information about the World Championship. We're going to have some Rec. Ninja League events coming up for you soon, so stay on the lookout for those. Until then, uh, my thanks to Ethan and Chris. Also, our thanks to my friend Kyle Foley for helping to edit this podcast. And I've been Alex Cunningham. We will see you next time on the National Ninja League podcast.